You may be seated. And please open up your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, we'll be looking at Habakkuk 1 verses, verse 12 through Habakkuk 2 verse 5. So this is our second sermon in a series through this small Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Um, little book of Habakkuk can be found um, just to the right of Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you go too far, you'll hit Matthew. And so you can go back a little bit to the left, go back past Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. You'll, you'll, you'll find it. Uh, it's, it's a minor prophet. Remember, minor doesn't refer to its importance. doesn't mean it's minorly important. Rather, it means it's a little book. The major prophets are bigger books. The minor prophets, smaller books. Uh, the outline of the book of Habakkuk is pretty simple. Habakkuk raises a, a prayer complaint to God. God responds. Habakkuk raises a second prayer complaint to God. God responds. Then there are five woes to the Babylonians. And then the, the book ends in chapter 3 with a, a psalm or a prayer of trust and confidence in God from Habakkuk. And so the outline is complaint, response, complaint, response. You've got the five woes and you have the psalm of trust and confidence in the Lord. And so today we're going to look at Habakkuk's second prayer complaint and the Lord's response. And so before we look at it, though, it's important to remember the context. Remember that um, Habakkuk most likely lived through the revival, the great revival that took place under King Josiah, uh, the rediscovery of, of God's word and faithfulness to it and the way it reformed uh, their, their worship and, um, and their ethics and the way they lived and everything. He lived through that revival and then also long enough to, uh, to experience and to minister under unfaithful kings that followed Josiah and to, to experience the, and to see and witness the, the backsliding of the nation into great unfaithfulness and wickedness leading up to the Babylonian exile in 586 BC. And so that, that time of unfaithfulness and rampant sin is the setting for the book. The prophet sees that evil, he sees that sin, that unfaithfulness all around him. He cries out to God to bring another revival cries out to God for him to do something about the sin that the prophet sees everywhere. And you may remember that a summary of that, that first prayer complaint from Habakkuk to God really is, could be summarized in terms of two questions. The prophet cries out, how long and why? You know, how long is this going to go on? How long are you going to tolerate this? I mean, God, do you even care what's going on? And why? Why is this happening? Why are you allowing it to happen? But God tells the prophet that he is doing something and he will do something. But what God has decided to do uh, is going to be hard. That in many ways the cure will be more painful than the disease because what God is doing is raising up the Babylonians. And he's sending them this, this bitter and hasty and dreaded and fearsome nation to crush the Israelites and to carry them away uh, into exile. As, as I said last week, I quote, you shared this quote with you from a couple of commentaries, commentators. And I think it's helpful to kind of put some of this together. It says, the message of Habakkuk is brought via an intense dialogue with the Lord where the prophet seeks to reconcile his understanding of the sovereignty of God, on the one hand, 
with what he sees as the incongruous actions of God on the other. This dialogue draws the reader into a deeper reflection on the means and methods of God. And so it's important to realize that. I mean, it really is. It's an intense dialogue, an intense wrestling by Habakkuk with his God about what he knows to be true, that God is good, that God is is loving, that God is sovereign and in control with what he sees all around him, which appears to be a world that doesn't care anything about God, and that's spiraling out of control, filled with rampant wickedness and unfaithfulness. So this intense dialogue, it continues in our passage today, and you'll notice as you listen that the, the, the Habakkuk's second prayer complaint really focuses on on God's nature, on his character, on his attributes. And we'll see how, in God's response, how God really is working in and through what feels like a very impossible situation for Habakkuk as the prophet waits in faith and and learns to live in faith. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Habakkuk 1, verse 12. This is his second complaint. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love and for our good. And the the outline for today is very similar to last week, and it follows the the text before us. We'll see um, Habakkuk's complaint, and we'll see the Lord's response. So Habakkuk's complaint, beginning in verse 12. Now remember, that first complaint can be summarized by how long and why. And God answered him, well, I'm, I'm raising up, I'm sending the Babylonians, they're coming for violence. They're going to gather captives like sand. They laugh at their enemies. They sweep through like the wind and nothing is left in their wake. And in response to that answer from God to Habakkuk, he raises the second prayer complaint beginning with a rhetorical question in verse 12. 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Now, it's a rhetorical question, right? Habakkuk knows the answer. Is God from everlasting? Yes, absolutely. 100% Habakkuk knows this. And so why does the prophet ask a question that he already knows the answer to? Habakkuk understands that God has decided to send the Babylonians, which is unthinkable, unimaginable. It really is, for for the prophet, an impossible situation, and there's no way out. You can tell from this passage, I mean, he's greatly perplexed and tormented by this reality. And so, so what is he to do whenever he faces a situation like this? Right? Well, what are the people of God to do? What are we to do whenever we face unthinkable, impossible situations with no apparent way out? Well, in many ways, the prophet gives us an example of what we are to do. And that is, we start with what we know to be true. And we take ourselves by the hand, and we remind ourselves of those things that are true, those those basic truths, those basic principles that we know were utterly, completely true, without any doubt, they were true before the present crisis began. We knew these things were true. We never doubted these things were true before things became difficult So we take ourselves by the hand and we remind ourselves of those same truths because they're still true today and they always will be. And that's where Habakkuk starts. So look again at verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? See, Habakkuk knows that his God is from everlasting. He's reminding himself of this basic, undeniable truth. That he knows that, that, that God is not surprised by Uh, Judah's sin. God's not caught off guard by the coming Babylonians. He's not overwhelmed by the present crisis. That he was around long before the Babylonians, uh, you know, became known on the world stage. He's going to be around long after they're forgotten. As professor and pastor O. Palmer Robertson puts it, God was from eternity, and from eternity he had settled on a purpose. History provided the framework in which the sovereign Lord would bring to pass his everlasting intentions. Okay, so look one more time at verse 12 and look at now the last sentence. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. So a couple of things to notice. One, I hope you can see how the prophet emphasizes his his covenant relationship with God. Right? O Lord, my God, my Holy One. But then you have that last sentence, we shall not die. So what, what, is, what does that mean? Well, here's what I think it doesn't mean. I don't think it's wishful thinking. Okay, I don't believe that Habakkuk's saying something like this to God. Okay, God, come on, let's be serious about this now. I know you're not really going to send the Babylonians to, to wipe us out and carry us away into sl- uh, slaves into exile, right? We're not really going to die. I don't think that's the case at all. The prophet knows that God's serious. God is not uh, joking with him. He's not messing around with him. He's not playing tricks with him. But he's reminding himself of the basic truth that God is from everlasting and that God has made everlasting promises to his people. Everlasting covenant promises to his people. And that is where the prophet is is drawing hope from and who he knows God to be and the words that God has spoken 
to his covenant people. See, the prophet knows that, that God is not going to allow the Babylonians to utterly annihilate the Israelites, that so there's always going to be a remnant. That God will preserve a people for himself. That God's plan of redemption involving the Savior who was to come. Well, the, the offspring of the woman promised back in Genesis 3.15 in, in the garden. The Savior who was to come of the seed of Abraham, of the line of David, would still come. That God would still be faithful to his covenant people. He would still be faithful to his covenant promises. And I like the way that, that Pastor Walter Chantry ties this together. He says, with warm affection... Habakkuk expressed direct attachment to the Most High. You are my God and my Holy One. I cleave to you in these distressing hours. Our bond is not broken. When all else gives way, you, O Lord, are the rock upon which I have firm footing. Which, by the way, you need to remember that. Remember that today for your own life. When, when all else gives way, for you, for me, the Lord, He is the rock upon which we have firm footing. Chantry goes on, God's sovereignty reaches back to eternity, his purposes even to appoint wild heathen Babylonians to attack and dismantle Judah were no hasty decision of the moment, yet in the same recesses of eternity, God's purposes of grace were linked with the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, thus the affirmation, we shall not die. You see, friends, we, we must remind ourselves of these eternal truths over and over and over again. We must remind ourselves of truths like what Jesus promised, that, that he would build his church, and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. We remember who our God is and what he has promised to us in his word always, and especially when the times, the difficult times come and the trials are the most distress, the distressing and things appear to be the most dire. Now, the, the prophet's second prayer complaint, it continues in the second half of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. And so I think here the prophet is essentially saying, yes, Lord, I know that you're sovereign. You've ordained the Babylonians, they're going to come, and they're going to crush us because of our sin. And yet I trust you to be my rock. Yeah, it seems like the whole world has changed, it is changing, and I know that the Babylonians are coming, but you, O oh Lord, have not changed and you will not change. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are my rock. Yes, the Babylonians are coming, and they're coming for a singular purpose, for violence, but today, just like every day, you are my one and only place of security. Now, when you think this through, okay, Habakkuk says, God is, you are my rock. And in that moment, when he realizes the Babylonians are coming, and there's nowhere else to turn, there's nothing else he can do, there's nowhere else to run, there's nowhere to hide, that he confesses that God is his rock. He's got nowhere else to go but to God for security. But the reality that he had no other place to go but to God, that's not because the Babylonians are coming. It was always that way. Habakkuk was always dependent upon God, needy before God, that his security was always only found in God and in God alone. 
But the prophet is just able to see it more clearly because the Babylonians are coming. All of the other false places of security and of peace and of comfort are now stripped away. And the same is true for us. Right? I mean, we're, we're always dependent creatures. We're dependent on God for life and breath, our next breath. We are dependent upon him. But when do we feel our acute need for God as our rock? Isn't it when the, the chips are down? Isn't it when we, we lose our job, we get the bad diagnosis, or we lose that relationship, or the relationship is, is threatened? Isn't it when we can't see a clear path forward? I mean, we're just as dependent on God to be our rock whenever times are good. It's just that we are forgetful people, aren't we? We begin to put on blinders. We begin to believe that, you know, we're, we're not dependent. That we can handle things. But we can't. Now, you may remember from last week that Habakkuk's name means embrace, as in two wrestlers, you know, embraced and locked up in a wrestling match. And, and, and that's fitting because we see the prophet wrestling with God in prayer. But we're going to see in verses, verse 13 is that Habakkuk continues his complaint, but there's a transition that happens. He, he moves away from declaring the truths that he believes to be true about who God is, and he begins to, to wrestle and plead and groan with God to not let the, the wicked Babylonians do this to his people. And we'll see that the, the prophet, he's truly perplexed and, and tormented by what he sees around him among his people with sin and wickedness, but also what he's been told is going to happen. He, he's, he's struggling with the idea of a, of, a, of a more wicked nation coming to punish them. So put it another way. The prophet knows, okay, God, I know that we're sinful. Right? But, the, but, but we're here in, in, in the sinful meter, but the Babylonians are here. And this feels unfair. And so listen to what he says. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong... Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Right, so obviously God is omniscient. He, he sees all. He knows all. So he, he sees evil. But Habakkuk's point is, God, I know you're holy. I know you can't condone and endorse evil. So why, how are you doing this? I mean, can you really uh, raise up and send the Babylonians? And he uses that, that, that phrase of swallows up, right? Can, can you remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? And I think Habakkuk uses that because throughout the Old Testament, we see God swallow up the wicked in a number of places. One of them is, is in the days of Noah, during the great flood, that you know, every inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. And so you know, mankind is swallowed up by the flood. Right, we see it in the Exodus story, that the Israelites pass through the Red Sea on dry ground, but then Pharaoh's army is swallowed up by the Red Sea as it collapses back down on top of them. A little bit later in Numbers 16, there's Korah's rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and the earth opens up, and the rebels are swallowed up. But in all those cases, the wicked are swallowed up. And so that's Habakkuk's point in verse 13. He says, God, it now seems inconsistent with your holy character, or at the very least, 
at least a little unfair that you're going to allow a more wicked nation to swallow us up, us up. Even, I mean, we're wicked, but we're less wicked than they are, and so how are you going to do this? And I hear a little kind of chuckling, and we chuckle because we can relate to it, can't we? Right? I mean, we all know, we know that we're not perfect. My guess is not one of you is willing to meet me after the service and, and, and argue your case for how you're perfect. Okay, that's my guess. That, I mean, if you are, just come see me. We've got a lot to talk about, but I, but I don't think that's going to be the case. We know we're not perfect. We know about our own sin, but doesn't it trouble us greatly when someone who's more sinful than we are appears to be winning and we appear to be losing? That's what's in Habakkuk's heart and mind. And he's expressing it to God, groaning upward to God about this. Uh, the late pastor James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, and I think this is, this is helpful. He says, we encounter this on a personal level too. Suppose you lose your job because a person who has it in for you misrepresents something you have done. Why did God allow this very bad person to succeed? Suppose you are sick and a doctor misdiagnoses your case so that you get worse. Why has this happened? Suppose you experience some great disappointment, the death of a child or spouse, the breakup of a marriage or an engagement, a failure to get into the right graduate school or residency. Doesn't God care? You're not perfect, but why should someone who is not even a Christian have it good while you lose out? That, that's what's going on in Habakkuk's mind. That's his mindset. And his complaint continues in verse 14, the beginning of verse 15. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. So Habakkuk's essentially saying, God, you've got us here like sitting ducks. You know, we're like fish in a barrel, and the Babylonians are coming to shoot fish in a barrel. We're just sitting here. They're going to scoop us up in their net. And then verse 15 mentions a hook, how the Babylonians use a hook. And this is an example of how brutal and vile they were as a nation. Uh, I mentioned last week how they conquered the Assyrians, and, and, they, and they adopted the practice of the Assyrians of, of driving a hook, this is nasty, but driving a hook in the lower lip, through the lower lip of their defeated enemies. And they would literally string them all together as they marched them off to slavery and captivity. So then you see in verse 15, he gathers them in his net, dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Verse 16, therefore he sacrifices to his net, makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. So now as, as repulsive as it is to think about driving the hook through someone's lower lip and stringing them together as you march them off, notice that the Babylonians would also, they would gloat and they would taunt, and they would mock their defeated foes as they carried out their brutality. And then additionally, Habakkuk raises the point to God that you know, if you give the Babylonians victory, that's only going to provide them more opportunity to offer their sacrifices to their false gods and their idols. To this, Habakkuk then asks God in verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Simply put, God, do you hear what I'm saying? Like, yes, I know, we're not been, we've not been perfect. We've been a wicked nation. But we're not nearly as bad as, as, as the Babylonians. You know what they do. You know how evil they are. Yes, God, I know our worship has been, has been tainted. We haven't been faithful. 
but, but, we're, but we're more faithful than they are. And so he's asking God, will you ever stop the Babylonians? God, are you really okay with this? I mean, is this really your plan? Are you really going to allow this wickedness to go on unchecked and unpunished while they punish us? And so Habakkuk, he's perplexed. He's struggling mightily to reconcile what he knows to be true about God's character and God's nature, God's promises with what he's heard God declare is going to happen and happen soon. So what does the prophet do next? What, what can he do? What can you do after you've poured out your heart in honesty and lament and complaint to God in prayer? What can you do? Same thing Habakkuk did. Look at what he did. Habakkuk 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, it's hard to tell whether Habakkuk literally went to the, to the, to the wall and, and took a post on the watchtower or whether he's using a metaphor to say that he was committed to wait and watch for the Lord's response. But it is clear that Habakkuk expected a response from the Lord. Right? He's very, very bold in his second prayer complaint to the Lord. He's very bold. But notice, he knows that he doesn't have the last word. Okay, now I know that none of you are people who insist on having the last word in a conversation or an argument. I know that's, that's not true for any of you. Okay, but there are people out there who really want the last word. Perhaps you've met them, okay? But Habakkuk knows that he doesn't have the last word. In fact, look again at the final line of, of chapter 2, verse 1. And look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Now, that's tricky to understand, but some other translations say, and what I will answer concerning my rebuke, or what I will answer when I am corrected. See, I think the point is that Habakkuk fully expects a response from the Lord, right? He knows he doesn't have the last word, and he even expects that that response from the Lord is probably going to point out how he's been wronged, how he sought through things incorrectly. So Habakkuk's expectation is that he's not spoken the last word on this matter. And that's healthy, right? It's a healthy example of, of how we are to groan upward to the Lord. Remember last week I talked about the difference between grumbling about God and how that's wrong and that's unhelpful and it's sinful but groaning up to God in prayer, being honest with God, expressing our, our issues and our doubts and our complaints and our laments upward to God, that that can be healthy and God welcomes that. God can handle our honesty in prayer. So be honest with God. And he handles all of these things. But we also ought to have a posture of humility as we wait on the Lord to respond and to answer and to not think that we have the last word. So that's Habakkuk's complaint. Then, then we see the Lord's response. And I know it appears, you know, for Habakkuk, we read the book, it seems like, you know, life must have been easy for this prophet. Yeah, the Babylonians are coming, but man, this guy, he, he, he speaks to God, and then God sends him an email right back. He gets his answer right away. We don't know how long he was a watchman on the tower waiting. Perhaps it was a while, but he waited, and the Lord did respond. And notice 
as honest and as bold as Habakkuk was, there's not a rebuke that comes his way. Instead, we read in Habakkuk 2.2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Now, it's hard to know exactly what this means. Some think it means write everything clearly and big enough so that people can read it so easily, even if they're running by, they can still read it, kind of like a billboard. Others think it means write it plainly so that messengers can take it and run uh, with the message to the four corners of the kingdom and proclaim the message. What I think is most important is he was supposed to write it down. What's second most important for us to understand is Habakkuk's not writing down his own ideas. He's writing down what God has told him to write down. Right? I mean, this, this is the word of the Lord, including Habakkuk. It is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true. It is given to us in love for our good, and we ought to not take it for granted. Right? This little book of Habakkuk, it is God-breathed Holy Scripture. So what we see here in verse 2 is what Peter wrote about in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 when he said, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see happening with Habakkuk. The Lord spoke to Habakkuk, and Habakkuk wrote it down, and he made it plain. Then we see it in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So it may seem like the Babylonians are taking a long time to come, but they will come. And this is going to happen because I, the Lord, have ordained it. I, the Lord, have said it will come to pass. It may seem like it's slow. It may seem like it's delayed. But I've not lied to you. It is fixed, it will happen, and it will be for my glory, and it will ultimately be for the good of my people. And friends, that was true in Habakkuk's day, and it's still true in our day. That God's promises may be slow in coming to fulfillment according to our timetable, but they're never slow according to God's timetable. Listen to how Water Chantry puts it, promises may seem delayed in our time, but there will be no tearing of fulfillment in God's appointed time. Faith is always called upon to wait rather than to have all blessings now. And that can be hard, but that's part of the message here. And you're going to see it. See, the the next verse, Habakkuk 2.4, it's one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. You're like, wait a minute, I've I've never heard of that verse. Well, you haven't heard of it, but you have heard it. Because it's quoted one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament, quoted in three different places. And so we're going to look at it together. So first, look at Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. So first off, God's not contrasting the puffed up and arrogant Babylonians with the righteous Israelites. Okay, he's not saying Babylonians bad, Israelites good. Okay, I mean, this whole book is about Babylonians bad, Israelites bad. Okay, Israelites, God's covenant people, God's faithful to them, God's giving his word, God's going to use the bad Babylonians to discipline the, the bad Israelites. But what Habakkuk wants God to, to mean is Babylonians puffed up, arrogant, bad, Israelites righteous, live by faith. But that's not, that's not the message. 
right? God's message to Habakkuk and to us is clear. The righteous will live by faith and not by belonging to any particular nation, not by being born into the right family, and not by being just a little bit more moral than the next guy or the next girl. The righteous will live by faith. Okay, by faith in what? By faith in whom? How is a person declared righteous? Well, to answer the question, we need to look back and look forward. We need to look back because Habakkuk 2.4 is actually an echo of another very important book, a verse earlier in the Bible. And then we'll look forward to how the New Testament quotes it. So looking back to Genesis 15, this is back before Abraham became Abraham. He was still Abram. This is when, before um, his wife had given birth to Isaac, that God had made covenant promises to Abram, but that required the, uh, an offspring from, from his wife, and it hadn't come yet. So we read in Genesis 15, verse 3, And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir, and he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. See, Abram was counted as righteous. Not because Abram was perfectly sinless. Not because Abram promised to try really, really, really hard to be better. But because God's grace through faith in the promise of the Savior who was to come, even through his own seed. And then Habakkuk 2.4 is an echo of this truth. Okay, counted to him, he believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. With that in mind, think about how the Apostle Paul uses Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see the point that Paul's making there? He's quoting Habakkuk 2.4. The point is, the most religious Jew who tries as hard as possible to obey the law will never, ever, ever be righteous in of themselves. Why? Because the righteous will live by faith in the promised Savior. But also, the most wicked and evil pagan who had sinned in heinous and vile ways was not beyond the grace of God. Well, why not? The righteous will live by faith in the Savior, and that even includes the worst of sinners. And so, so do you know that Paul's use of Habakkuk 2, 4 in Romans 1, 17, that was the key verse that God used to open Martin Luther's eyes to see the truth of the gospel that then led to the, to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Listen to how Martin Luther describes it. Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. You see, because he misunderstood things, Luther thought, yes, God, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, God, you call me to, to be righteous. And the only way I can be righteous is if I live faithfully. But I know that I'm not faithful. And so I know that I'm not righteous. And so he felt tormented by this, not understanding God's grace through Christ in the gospel. 
But when, by the Spirit of God, I understood those words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Right? The righteous will live by faith. It's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. We have to understand this. See, no one is made righteous by our good works. No one. Right? That's the point that Paul will go on to make in Romans 2 and 3. Right? That, that no one is made righteous by their good works. We're only made righteous by the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's why we must have faith in him. It's why we must receive and rest upon him alone and his finished work on our behalf. We don't bring anything to the table. Listen to some of these quotes. Um, the Anglican priest William Temple once said, The only thing of my very own that I can contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. It's not my own good works. I don't bring anything. J.C. Ryle said, A man who comes to Christ brings nothing but a sinful soul. He gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. Or as the old hymn puts it, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. George Whitfield said, Works, works, a man get to heaven by works? I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. That's pretty hard. And so do you see the connection then between Habakkuk 2.4 and Romans 1? That all people will one day stand before the judgment throne of God, and that includes the Babylonians and the Judeans and the Jews and the Greeks and you and me. But the only ones who will live are those who have been made righteous by God's grace. It's only, it will only be those to whom God has given the gift of faith and eyes to see and love and trust and rest in the Christ the Savior. But see, Habakkuk 2.4, it's also quoted in Galatians 3. Paul, there Paul writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, no one is saved because of their nationality, because of the family they're born into. No one is saved because they're able to keep the law a little bit better than the next person. No, salvation is only by grace through faith in Jesus the Savior. He is the one who became a curse for us on the cross. He died in our place as our substitute. The other place Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament is Hebrews 10. Paul's writing to, uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to, that's not, that's a Freudian slip. Okay, the author of Hebrews, I don't think necessarily that was Paul. The author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are being persecuted and they're suffering. And he's calling them to remain faithful. Very, very similar to God's response to Habakkuk, who knows that suffering is coming. And he's calling him to remain faithful. So in Hebrews 10, we read, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, 
but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So they're being called to, to be patient and to persevere despite great persecution. And so it's very similar to what's happening in Habakkuk. That both are encouraged that all things will eventually be set right by our good, just, sovereign, and loving God. That one day God will deal justly with the wicked and one day deal justly with the righteous who live by faith in Christ. But God will do it according to his timetable and not ours. Okay, so when you think about the New Testament use of Habakkuk 2.4, it's telling us on the one hand, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's also telling us we live the Christian life by grace through faith in Christ. It's from faith for faith, as Paul says in Romans 1. There's one last verse in Habakkuk 2.5. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest, His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So here the Babylonians are described as a a drunken man on a bit of a bender, on a rampage. He's drunk, he's proud, he's greedy. No matter what he gathers for himself, it's never enough. And we understand that, don't we? Even if you remove the drunk part, an arrogant man, an arrogant person will never be at rest. Don't we know that? An arrogant, puffed up, prideful person who can only and will only ever think of themselves will never have enough. They'll never be satisfied. Right? When all you think about is yourself and your own glory and your own status and how you can use other people for what they can do for you, you'll never, ever, ever be content. You'll never, ever, ever be satisfied. You'll never, ever, ever have enough. And apart from God's grace at work in us, we will never, ever, ever do enough to earn our salvation, and we need Christ. So you look one more time at Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by his faith. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, the faith Habakkuk commends is that faith, faith which strips us of all arrogance and leads us naked and needy to God that we may seek salvation from him alone, which would otherwise be far removed from us which would otherwise be as far from us as as trying to climb to the moon on a rope of sand. The righteous will live by faith. So as we're getting ready to come to this table, I have to ask, do you have this faith? The righteous will live by faith. Do you have this faith? If not, do you want it? Because the invitation that we find throughout the scriptures is to come and get it if you want it. If you want it, come to Christ. Lay your deadly doing down at Jesus' feet and stand in him gloriously complete. Trust Christ. It's not a matter of you trying hard to be better. It's not a matter of you simply trying hard to stop doing these certain bad things and cut these bad habits out. Trust in Christ and his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his glorious, victorious resurrection. Let me end with this. Pastor Kevin DeYoung asked, do you believe, dear Christian, do you have faith in the midst of all that is going on around you that God is with you? Do you have faith that sin is not the last word for you? Do you have faith that death will indeed lose its sting? Do you have faith that your prayers matter? Do you have faith that God has a plan for the church? Do you have faith that God has a purpose for you? 
Do you have faith that in all these things we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us? Do you have faith that Jesus is worth it? See, the righteous will live by faith. We, we come to know Christ by faith, and we persevere in the Christian life by grace through faith as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for these truths and this glorious truth that the righteous will live by faith. And Lord, we're thankful that this table before us is a reminder that our faith is not merely wishful thinking, but our faith is, is a sure and certain hope, a sure and certain anchor, we have faith in a Christ who really did live and die and rose from the grave. That tomb really was empty. And he really is sitting at your right hand. And he really is ruling and reigning, interceding for us. And he really will come again. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We pray you prepare our hearts to come to this table. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.